You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So we got through it. We got through the first presidential debate, Clinton v. Trump. On Monday night, last Monday night, Hofstra University. Next presidential debate coming up October 9th. But before we leave this presidential debate, last week's presidential debate in the dust, it's just something I want to I want to talk about. I want to focus on for just a second. During the debate, toward the end of the debate, Donald Trump said this. I was going to say something extremely Please, rough to Hillary, to her family, and I said to myself, I can't do it. I just can't do it. It's inappropriate. It's not nice. Before we go on, I would just want to say we love you, Rosie O'Donnell. And Trump's obsession with you, Rosie O'Donnell, is evidence of some sort of mental illness. And you've borne it with such grace. And you've punched back with such force that I am full of admiration for you, Rosie O'Donnell. I know how painful this must be. But, but for our purposes today, we want to focus on what Trump said he didn't say about Hillary's family. It was something not nice. He didn't say what it was, but I think we all kind of knew what it might be that he was referring to. And in case anyone was confused, Trump clarified it later on Fox. I was going to hit her with her husband's women, and I decided I shouldn't do it. I didn't feel comfortable doing it. I think I did the right thing. It's not worth a point. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable doing it with Chelsea in the room. Trump still isn't completely clear there. He's still hinting, but we all know what the fuck he's talking about. He's talking about Bill Clinton's infidelities. And just in case anyone was unclear on the concept, I don't know if it was Patrick Bateman Trump or Ted Bundy Trump made it clear in a tweet later saying that it took courage for his father not to mention Bill Clinton's infidelity during the debate. And now there is talk about whether Trump is going to go for it. He's going to bring up Bill Clinton's infidelities during a debate. He's going to confront Hillary Clinton on the stage about her husband's infidelities because that makes sense for some reason that I don't quite understand. I am, as you may know, an advice columnist first. That's how I got my start in telling people what to do. And most people who write into advice columns, that's what they want. They want to be told what to do. But some readers write in, they explain their problems, and then they don't want to be told what to do. They want to be told what to say. They're looking for help putting something into words. And the advice columnist usually responds with suggested language, what the reader should say to the person that they're having trouble with. Hillary Clinton hasn't sent me an email seeking my advice, at least not so far as I'm aware. Maybe one of those 33,000 deleted emails was one Hillary sent to me and I didn't get to it in my inbox yet. But I pulled together some suggested language for Hillary anyway. I'm just going to pretend that Hillary wrote to me and asked me for some advice about what she should say if Donald Trump shows up to the next debate, which is an open question because Lester Holt was so mean to him and his microphone was so rigged. But if Donald Trump shows up and he attacks Hillary or attempts to attack Hillary by bringing up Bill's affair or affairs, here's what this advice columnist thinks Hillary Clinton should say. The fact that there have been challenges in my marriage, Donald, isn't news to anyone. My husband has not always been faithful. That's true. It's also not relevant to the question before the American people 
And that question is this, which one of us, you or me, should be the next president of the United States? My husband is not running for president. I am. But if you want to talk about affairs, Donald, let's talk about affairs. Yes, my husband has not always been faithful. Again, that isn't news. It should go without saying that his actions have, at times, caused a great deal of pain for me and our daughter and for all involved. It should go without saying, but here I am saying it, Donald, because you want to talk about affairs. So let's talk about them. But first I want to say this. I love my husband. He is not perfect. My husband loves me. I am not perfect. We managed to work through the pain and save our marriage like so many other couples who have faced similar challenges, and I'm glad we're still together. Now let's talk about affairs. You've had a few yourself, Donald, and that's not news to anyone either. You've bragged about the affairs you've had. You divorced your first wife and married one of the women you cheated on her with. For your third wife's sake, Donald, I hope your cheating days are behind you, because I know how painful being cheated on is, and I wouldn't wish that pain on anyone. It really hurts. Call your first wife, Donald, and ask her how it felt. But I don't think you really wanted to talk about affairs, Donald, certainly not your own. Your intent with this obnoxious line of attack is to suggest something. A woman who's been cheated on somehow isn't fit to hold the office of the presidency. I obviously don't believe that to be true. I wouldn't be running if I did. But if you think being cheated on disqualifies someone from holding this office, Donald, what on earth are you doing in this race? Because being cheated on is bad, Donald, it hurts. But cheating is worse. A decent person apologizes for cheating, which is what my husband did. A decent person doesn't go on Howard Stern and brag about it. The American people don't expect a perfect president. There are no perfect presidents. The American people deserve a decent one. That was Nancy Hartunian, podcast producer, standing in for Hillary Clinton, reading my suggested language. Typically, we advise columnists we don't suggest physical action when we roll out some suggested language. But I would suggest if Hillary Clinton goes with my suggested language, that she, at the end of that speech, that she pull the mic off the podium, hold it out in midair, and drop it. All right, coming up on today's show, lots of your questions, lots of my answers. And joining us for an interview and to take a couple of questions, Trey Crowder, the liberal redneck, all on today's show. Hey, Dan. A 34-year-old uh, lesbian in a seven-and-a-half-year relationship. And I'm having a problem uh, being able to have spontaneous sex with my girlfriend. She has this thing where she only wants to have sex if we've taken showers recently. Um, this was a problem a couple of years ago. And... I actually broke up with her last year for a couple of months, and it was one of my biggest issues. Um, I told, I basically told her that, you know, I can be down with not wanting to have sex when we're dirty, if we've been sweating, or if she's been at work all day. But if I come home from working in my office and I want to fuck, um, I'm not dirty in that sense. You know, yes, maybe we smell a little bit. Maybe um, it really smells like pussy way more than after you get out of the shower. Um, but I'm certainly not dirty. You know, we've gone back and forth about it. And after we got back together, she didn't care about that. When we, when she was trying to get me back and we did get back together, we fucked all the time, even after I came home from work. And I've asked her recently, why has that changed again? And she doesn't know. 
and I've told her that I'm not willing to pay the price to, to never be able to have spontaneous sex for the rest of my life. And, like, I used to not be like this when we first got together for a couple of years. And I asked her, like, like maybe you should go and get talk about this, because like, I feel like it's something wrong. Like, you know, you're a germaphobe about it all of a sudden. But she doesn't think anything's wrong. She thinks it's normal to not want to have sex unless the person's recently got a shower. You know, and this means anything. Like, it could just be me touching her pussy, not even me eating her out. So I'm just, like, really at a loss. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this. You know, I can't make her change. I can't make her feel good and feel comfortable having sex with me in the evening if I hadn't got a shower since earlier that morning. Um, But on the other hand, I don't want to live my life like that. Like, okay, now it's time to go get a shower because now we're going to have sex. Like, what if I'm just in the mood for it all of a sudden? You know, what if we're in the car? What if, what if, what if? I feel like there's tons of possibilities surrounding the need to not get a fucking shower before sex or the availability of no shower before sex. And it also makes me feel less sexy. It makes me feel like it's a chore or a job. I don't know. I'm just really feeling some type of way. You can make her change. You did make her change. When you broke up with her and the only way to get back in your good graces and win you back was to drop this shower bullshit and this shower routine, she did. She dropped it. She knocked it off. She let you eat her pussy when she'd only showered several hours earlier that day instead of immediately before and presumably vice versa. So you know what it takes and you have one card to play, which is to tell her This is a price of admission you were unwilling to pay, that she gets over this once and for all and permanently, and whether it's just an act of will on her part or some cognitive behavioral therapy that she needs, a few sessions, whatever it is, however she's going to get over it, she has to get over it or you're gone because this is that important to you. She got that last time. She could do it last time. The relationship was at stake. And you just have to tell her that this is really that important to you, that the relationship itself is at stake. Maybe that'll do the trick. It did the trick once before. Maybe it'll do the trick again. If it doesn't do the trick again, and you really are made this miserable by this routine, then you're going to have to walk. Hi, Dan. 25-year-old straight male living in the Midwest. Uh, And I have a problem that I was hoping you could help me out with. How do you deal with getting friend-zoned by your girlfriend Uh, Maybe I should back up a little bit. Uh, Me and my girlfriend have been dating for three years. Our relationship started off in a long-distance relationship uh, for about two years. And then within the last year, she has moved to my city, gotten a job. But, you know, last few months, we've been having some issues. And through talking about it, trying to be open and honest with, each other she has kind of come to the conclusion that you know maybe it's that she's not romantically in love with me anymore and you know she says she loves me and I believe her but she just doesn't may not see me like that anymore and asked for a break and you know to kind of figure things out and I'm just trying to you know, how do I deal with this? 
Uh, one of the things that she's mentioned that was an issue is that me and her parents have never really, I don't want to say gotten along because we've never had any like fighting or issues like that, but they just haven't really necessarily approved of me. I think one of the reasons is big on that is they're kind of stuck in their ways about uh, marijuana, which I smoke, but they've, I've always felt that they kind of held it against me. So I guess the other thing I'm asking is if things were to work out, how do I kind of try to maybe not repair, but, you know, encourage a better relationship between me and her parents, which she has stated is something very important to her. You've been dumped. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. You've been dumped. This isn't about her parents. This isn't about taking a break. This is about her letting you down as gently as she possibly can. So gently, in fact, that you don't realize that you've been let down, that you've been let go, that this isn't a break. It is a break up. You haven't been friend zoned. You've been dumped, broken up with, not friend zoned. So it would be a waste of time for me to, and a waste of your time, more importantly, to game out how to best approach a better relationship with your parents if you two get back together again, because you two are not getting back together again. There is a 99.999999% chance that you two are not getting back together again. She was with you for two, three years, regardless of how her parents felt about you. So her raising... Her parents' feelings at this stage I don't think is really about her parents. It's just about her ducking and weaving, her not wanting to just be direct with you, not wanting to hurt you. It's not a malicious thing that she's done. It's a thing that a lot of people do when they're trying to end a relationship with someone that they like and someone that they care about and they don't want to seem like they're being maliciously hurtful by just breaking up. So they gradually disentangle or they deflect or they – Throw out white lies that are misleading, that can leave somebody with false hope, which is what you've got a bad case of right now. And they think they're being nice because they're not causing a big fucking shit show all at once that has a lot of pain and tears and searing drama and cauterized wounds and all the rest of it. So they think this is the nice way to do it by pulling the relationship bandaid off so fucking slowly. And in the end, it's not the nice way to do it because eventually the person who is being let down gently looks back over the time that they wasted pining and hoping to get back together and realizes that that was a waste of their time, that that was never really in the cards and that they were living in false hope. And then they feel retroactively kind of humiliated and lied to and misled. So always best to make a clean break. That said, asterisk. Why do so many women engage in this kind of slow backing out of the room? Because they fear, not unreasonably, the sometimes violent reactions of their male partners. And I'm not saying to you, caller, that you're a bad dude or you would have had a violent reaction. But women are often afraid to tell men what men don't want to hear for fear of how that man in that room might react based not on any of his prior interactions, any behaviors he's engaged in in the past, but everything that she's witnessed out there in the world that's happened to women she knows, family members, her mother, her sisters, her friends, women she doesn't know, but whose stories about violent exes she's read about in newspapers or online or heard about on television. 
So this isn't about you, caller. Not saying that you did anything, but men have done so much to women that women who may not have anything to fear from their male partner still sometimes want to err on the side of caution when disentangling themselves from their male partners. So you've been dumped. It is over. Do not be angry now that you've realized that the band-aid was just being pulled off slowly. And do not worry about her fucking marijuana bigoted parents because they're out of your life and they're no longer a concern. And I would, if I were you, if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't hang out with her for a while. I wouldn't see her. I wouldn't talk to her. Don't stay emotionally engaged with her because it's just going to be more painful for you. Go to the movies, go to the gym, go have some pizza, eat some ice cream, talk to your friends, do some journaling. If you're the journaling type of guy, go for a long bike ride or three or four of those and just burn through the grief. The relationship's over. Time to start looking toward your future, a future that does not most likely have this particular woman in it. Lucky for you, there are 3.5 billion other women on the planet for you to think about. We have a special guest joining us to help answer some of your calls today. Trey Crowder, comedian you may know from his viral video series on Facebook called Liberal Redneck. Here's a taste of Trey. What's up, y'all? Trey Crowder, Liberal Redneck. Look, I want to talk about a lot of things, but this transgender bathroom deal just won't go away. And you know it's getting out of hand now because we got white people boycotting Target. God damn. Never thought I'd see the day. But yeah, sure enough, the American Family Association in Mississippi asked for a boycott of Target, and they got over 700,000 signatures. And I guarantee you, every one of them people so proud of themselves for making a statement, too. Y'all ever notice how shitty white people get to protest stuff by, like, going to Sears instead or eating two chicken sandwiches this week? But yeah, y'all are basically freedom riders. Guys, get my red up, man. Apparently, the people signing this petition are doing it because they don't feel comfortable taking their kids into Target now with their trans-friendly policy. Oh, really? Y'all ain't comfortable? Yeah? Well, if you'll allow a rejoinder, so the hell what? If my great-granny was still alive, she wouldn't be comfortable eating cornbread next to a color boy. Guess what? She'd have to get her old ass over it. Because it's 2016, and that's a shitty way to be. And why should we care if you're comfortable anyway? Have you ever even thought about the comfort of gay people, black people? Hell, me. I'm a non-Christian living in the South. I can't even go to a goddamn potluck without having to thank some space fairy for the broccoli casserole. And honey, it makes me a little uncomfortable. Have you ever cared? I'm guessing not since Nancy Grace never had a hashtag about it. Trey is currently touring with his writing partners on a 60-city national tour called The Well-Read Comedy Tour. They also wrote a book available now for pre-sale and being published October 4th by Simon & Schuster. Hey, Trey, how are you? Hey, Dan, I'm doing good, man. How you doing? I'm doing really well. You know, I've been watching your videos for a long time now and thought anybody who's that good and that smart on gun control, Donald Trump, Black Lives Matter can probably give really great sex advice, too, because sex advice, really, any idiot can do it if I'm doing it. <laughs> well, we'll we'll see about that. I don't know. I've uh I've been married for uh five years, but it, you know that that takes a lot out of you, in my experience in that regard. I feel like I've lost, any any uh you know I feel like I've lost quite a bit of the edge on that front. So we'll see how it goes. Well, I've been married for twenty two ish years, so I hope that's not how it works. If five years makes you incapable of giving sex advice, then I should really be lying on the floor right now and not moving. Right, right, right. So we've lined up a few calls for you, and we're going to play one right now. Hi, Dan. Um, I am calling because in about a month or so, I will be coming out to my extremely religious 
parents. I had two cousins that came out. One, they tried to, you know, do an exorcism on her, and the other one was cut off. Just everything was cut off. Um, emotional, financial, every everything was cut off. One while I am um, financially independent, and I've been kind of weaning myself off from speaking to my family and. So I've been kind of getting myself ready and I think I'm ready and I know what to expect. I know what will happen. You know, it's not going to be one of those things you see in the movies where, you know, things eventually will be okay. I know it's not going to be okay. So I guess my question will be, what do I do after, you know, do I, should I try and continue to speak to them? Should I let them come to me or what is the after of this situation where things most likely don't turn out okay? Should I send them Christmas cards and hopefully get one back one day? So growing up in middle of nowhere, Tennessee, you've probably seen this, right? Gay or lesbian or bi or trans folks from Tennessee. You know, we're from everywhere, including middle of nowheres, coming out and it not being well-received, it not going over well. Have you seen that in your own social circles, your own community? Um, yes, definitely. Uh, and, you know, and it always, it's always really bothered me a lot. I've never been able to understand that mentality because, like, I mean, ever, but especially now because, I mean, I've got, I've got kids, you know, and I've talked to my redneck guys I grew up with, about, and they always bring that up. It's like, well, what if one of your boys is gay? Then what are you going to do? That kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And it always just blows my mind. Like, what do you I don't know. I, Step my parade game up, I guess. You know, what the <laughs> hell you want me to say, man? Like, that's that's my son. Like, I, I seriously can't fathom being able to be affected by something like that as far as how you feel about, you know, a loved one. I, I don't get it. But I did. I mean, yeah, I come from a place where you say that kind of thing all the time, and it's just heartbreaking. But now, having said that, uh, my uncle, my dad's only sibling, he's gay, and luckily he did not go through that. Now, I mean, I'll be honest. It's one of those things like you just didn't like with my grandpa and stuff. He just didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. But like my uncle and his partner would, they were there every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, him and my dad were so my dad didn't care at all. So like in my family, we didn't do that, which I was always glad for. Cause my uncle's awesome, but I have seen that happen. Unfortunately. Yes. Where I'm from, it's uh, all too common. I think I can fathom it. And the problem a lot of people have is they may be okay with having the queer kid, but they're, they worry that other people are going to think that they did something wrong, that they were lousy parents, that they let this happen right. and encouraged it. And they're worried about how they're going to be viewed by their pastor, their coworkers, other family members, because their kid turned out queer. They screwed up their kid. They didn't raise their kid. Right. As if right raising is something that can prevent gayness, which right. just ain't so. Yeah, no, that actually, yeah, that completely checks out. I, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but you're probably spot on with that. They think that it'll reflect upon them too, uh, for whatever reason. But either way, I mean, even that though, like I just, again, logically that makes sense. But like emotionally though, I just can't imagine ever responding that way, but people definitely do. And it sucks. And it sounds like the caller is almost certainly going to run into that based off <laughs> what he had said in the call about he's, they tried to perform an exorcism on a family member that came out of the closet or something like that. So yeah, mm-hmm. probably ain't going to go very smoothly for that guy. <laughs> well, unfortunately. L- luckily for him, he's not 
financially dependent upon them. He doesn't live with them. You know, some kids come right. out and they get thrown out or they're, as with another family member of the callers, a uh, kid got cut off, parents, family not helping with education or helping them get, you know, find their footing in life. But he's not in a position where they can fuck him over financially, residentially, only, yeah. only emotionally can they fuck him over. And it can right. still put a zap on your head, even if you're not dependent upon your family and parents. But his question was, what does he do? What do you do after? You know, it's it's not going to be okay. It, it, in this case, he thinks it won't get better. What does he do after? Does he maintain those lines of communication? Does he send those Christmas cards? Does he keep opening the door? Or does he just go silent and wait to hear from them? I mean, I think, I don't know. It's one of those things where I sort of feel like maybe, you know, the right thing to do or whatever, if there is one, would be, you know, kill them with kindness or what, you know, like, yeah, send them Christmas cards, all that stuff. Don't let them, you know, uh, you make, you make it evident that you are not going to stop, you know, loving them or whatever for any kind of reason like that. And that's maybe they'll, you know, make them see how ridiculous they're acting. Now, mm-hmm. having said that, I don't, I honestly, I probably wouldn't do that because <laughs> I'm not, I'm not gay, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm a liberal atheist. And so I've got a lot of uh, family members and people I grew up with was very close to that are not about that at all either. And honestly, I just sort of don't have anything to do with them, to be honest with you. That's the, that's the approach that I've taken. Like if they're not, I, I don't go out of my way to try to like rectify that. I'm just like, well, that's their problem, not mine. That's the way I treat it. But maybe the caller could be a bigger man than me. I don't know. You know, Your tack with those family members of yours aligns with my advice, my typical advice, my standard advice for people in the caller's position. Your only leverage over your parents, your family of origin, as an adult, is your presence. And if they can't treat you with respect, if they can't love you, don't be present. You have to be, you have to be right. willing to use that leverage. That said, I think it is good to model the behavior you would like to see, to love them in a small way to demonstrate to them that you aren't as small-minded and you are open in a way that they're not right. open. To be the change you want to see in your family sometimes is a tack that you can take. That doesn't mean you have to show up to get pummeled. It doesn't mean you have to not bring your husband home for Christmas and then get you know Leviticus right. thrown in your face. You don't have to put up with any of that. But occasional phone call, occasional card, letting them know that you're not the asshole here, I think that's a good strategy. Yeah, that's uh, right. It, exactly. I can I can definitely see it both ways. Like I said, rationally, everything you just said, I agree with. But like, uh, you know, emotionally, I know how I am and how I actually have responded. And it would probably be more, you know, with what we were saying earlier and just not have anything to do with them until they decide they want to have some sense, you know, which might never happen. Hey, Dan, um, I'm a longtime listener. I've been listening to your podcast for probably eight or nine years now. Um, I've learned a lot from your sex and relationship advice. I really appreciate that. Um, You're starting to lose me with this gun control thing. I completely agree with you that semi-automatics, that all those mass murdering guns should be gone. I completely agree with you. But you lose me at when I hear someone has a gun, I think, fucking lunatic. I don't want my kid around. Go fuck yourself, Dan. I live in New England. My family hunts. We've done that for many, many generations. We put food in the freezer. We feed our families with the food that we procure. We're humane about it. We don't bait things. We sit in trees. We wait. We find our food. Go fuck yourself. 
when you get to calling us gun-fondling lunatics. Go fuck yourself. All right? You need to get, raise the bar of compassion. You need to see past. So all I hear you talk about is people who are carrying in self-defense, self-defense, self-defense. Fine. Statistics say that's not helpful. Fine. That's not the only reason we want guns. I feel like you need to continue to educate yourself. Thank you. All right, Trey. I'm a liberal northern pussy. And or scrotum. We should I always like to say scrotum. A liberal northern scrotum. Pussies are strong, they chew up semen and spit out humans. It's, it's balls that are weak. You tap them and the person's on the floor. I'm a liberal northern <laughs> ball sack. And I'm terrified of guns, even though my dad was a cop and my brother's a cop, and so I, you know, grew up in a house that had a gun in it, locked in a cabinet. Uh, but still, the caller's really mad at me. She can't decide which I should do first, uh, educate myself or fuck myself. But she's really mad at me <laughs> for something that I've said on the show that I'll say to you now. And you can, like, you're from a gun culture. Do you, do you own a gun yourself? Uh, yes. I have never purchased a gun, but I own multiple guns because, like many people where I'm from, uh, I inherited my grandfather's arsenal. So, yeah, I own guns. They're more like family heirlooms than anything else, but I do have I do own guns. Yeah. Okay, I had the same thing. I inherited a bunch of Catholic kitsch from my grandfather, but it can't hurt you unless it falls on you, the seven-foot Jesus in the dining room. If it falls on you, you'll die. But no <laughs> right. guns, just a lot of crucifixes, yeah. hymnals, and statues. But my problem with guns isn't that I think all people with guns are assholes. My dad has a gun. My brother has a gun. Not assholes. My problem is that since any asshole in this country can get their hands on a gun— for my own self-preservation, if I hear you have a gun, I have to assume, all right, dangerous asshole, until proven otherwise. I just can't – I don't have it in me to say, oh, that person's a gun owner. That means they're safe, responsible. I can trust that the gun has a trigger lock on it, that it's put away, that kids in the house don't have access to it. And then they're not nuts because there's so many people who don't have trigger locks, don't put their guns away, allow kids to have access to them, and are nuts. And the cost of – Giving someone the benefit of the doubt when they have guns could be your life or your kid's life. So my assumption is dangerous lunatic with a gun until proven otherwise. Does that make me an anti-gun bigot asshole who needs to fuck himself? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I get where you're coming from logically, but I mean, you know, at the same time, I don't I don't really feel that, that way about it as far as – and it, it probably comes from having grown up. I mean, surrounded by guns <laughs> everywhere my whole life and uh, having the good fortune of never having, you know, seen that uh, go south the way that it can. I've never seen a, a person get shot or any kind of gun violence and related to that, uh, luckily. Although it does happen, especially amongst us rednecks, it definitely happens. But at, at, with my life experience, I just can't be that hardcore anti-gun to that level. Now, having said that, as far as gun control measures go, the the complete unwillingness of like the NRA and those people on the you know to the right, to the far right on that to do literally anything, anything at all about it. I mean that drives me insane. You know, like I we woke up if I woke up tomorrow and America had banned assault rifles and we had you know uh, stricter background checks and all those types of things, I would that would be t I would be totally fine with that. It wouldn't bother me at all. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I'm not a hardcore if you like guns, you're a lunatic person because I just, I know personally so many people that are all about guns and, you know, it is a little off-putting, but they're also, I wouldn't call them lunatics though at the same time. So, 
you know, my, my feeling about guns, uh, and, and I'm sorry to bore regular listeners who've heard me say this before, but wouldn't it be great, Trey? And how do you feel about this? To live in a country where, if you know somebody is a licensed gun owner, it's like knowing that they have a pilot's license. Like, wow, you can fly a plane. You trained for hours. You had, you know, all these student flights. You passed all these exams. You know how to fucking fly a plane. That's impressive. That you are a pilot with a pilot license. Wow. I wish I could feel the same way about guns. Oh, you're a gun owner? That means you took all these classes. You know what you're doing. I want you around if shit goes south. You're a smart yeah. and and capable person who cleared a high bar. And right now it's like, oh, you have a gun? Did you buy it on a street corner? Did you buy it at a gun show? Do you own 40 of them? Are you a psychotic nutbag who thinks that they're going to take down the federal government with an AR-15. You know, the assumptions that I make now when I hear somebody has a gun isn't, oh, good person that you want around in a crisis. It's, yeah, maybe a lunatic that you don't want living on your block, much less around in a crisis. Is that unfair of me? Am yeah. I just hopefully biased? No, no, no. It's no that what you said about it being analogous having a pilot's license. Yeah, I agree. That would be awesome if we could assume that. And you're right. You can't at all. And in fact, those even if they are, even like the ones that are like fundamentally good people and they're not like crazy and they you know what you know they don't want to hurt anybody and all that but they own guns most of those people if there was like an incident happening around them they would only make it so much worse you know like in their heads in their heads they're gonna save the day you know like well if i had been there in that movie theater that never would have happened that's what they genuinely think but like that's not true at all it would have only been worse and i've actually had like active shooter training like in my past life like as far as what to do when that happens and the cops will all tell you in like first responders they're like i don't care if you got a permit i don't care what gun i don't care where you stand on that stay out of the way because like if they show up and you it doesn't matter what side you're on if you got a gun they're gonna take you out Mm -hmm. you know like they the the authorities don't want these people helping and it but in their minds that's how they build it up is like they'll save the day and literally no one wants that except like their own egos so, yeah, you know, it's there's a fundamental disconnect with the reality <laughs> surrounding guns and what these people build up in their heads, I think. One more thing about guns before we move on to the next call. So this hunter and, you know, my husband's father was a hunter and his mother was a hunter and we used to have a freezer full of elk when they were young and spry enough still to hunt so we get hunters but she's like don't assume we're all lunatics don't lump all gun owners in together as like asshole lunatics you motherfucking shitbag is basically her response to me and i always feel like i feel like the onus is on gun owners if you don't want us to assume that you're all lunatics why aren't gun owners working harder to keep guns out of the hands of lunatics why are gun owners yeah. supporting the NRA? Why are gun owners on the front lines of like wanting to raise the bar for gun ownership so that if somebody owns a gun, other gun owners aren't then smeared by association with all the shitty people who are getting their hands on guns and misusing guns? It's just like those same, a lot of those same people are the same ones that uh, say about Muslims, you know, like, where are all the moderate Muslims at? Oh, they're, they're mostly moderate. Well, where are they at? Why aren't they saying anything or whatever? And first of all, like, you know, of course they are, but it just doesn't get covered like a terrorist attack because why would it? Mm-hmm. But the same logic applies to, uh, to gun owners. Yeah. You know, they, Wait, where they, are the moderates? Well, they don't do anything right. Where are the moderates? Where are the ones? And that's what, that's what I was saying earlier. You know, 
yeah, I own guns, but hey, if you want to ban assault rifles, whatever, that's fine with me. And I do think there's a we got a problem. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no one, no nobody else that's even remotely pro gun will say any of that ever. I mean, they literally wouldn't even pass stuff to keep terrorists or, or potential terrorists from being able to buy guns. Like that's how far into the sand they've dug their heels in, you know. And like it's just, I don't know. <laughs> And we have videos from Al-Qaeda and ISIS suggesting to wannabe jihadis to go to the United States and buy guns and, and commit acts of terror. And still the Republicans in Congress, in, you know, with the NRA's dicks in their mouths, can't pay, you know, look at that video and say, yeah, maybe we should not let people on the terror watch list buy AK-47s and AR-15s in this country per ISIS and Al-Qaeda's suggestions that they do. You know, the whole thing about... You know, why don't the moderates speak up to give credit to gun owners? When you look at the polls, majorities of gun owners support the exact gun control reforms that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama push about closing the gun show loophole, about universal background checks. But it's the NRA that speaks for gun owners and the moderate right. gun owners who support common sense gun legislation allow that to happen. They allow the NRA to speak to them for them, just like liberal Christians but, for too long allowed shitbags like Tony yes. Perkins to speak for them. Like if you don't like those of us who, you know, are on the outside of your culture thinking you're all fucking gun fondling lunatics, speak the fuck up. Don't just yell at us and say, oh, we're not all like that. I know you're not all like that. Speak the fuck up because the NRA claims to speak for all of you. That reminds me of something that just like illustrates the point you're making about the NRA speaking for them and like that whole mentality. And like, I can't, I can't really explain this, but this is a direct quote. Uh, I used to work in my old job with this uh, older veteran guy and he's a black guy and he's very, very pro gun. And he said to me once his exact words were, Trey, let me tell you something. The national Rifleman's association is one of the most racist organizations in this entire country pause and i've been a card carrying member for 35 years oh my god because that's i swear that's exactly what he said because it's like that's how i don't know important these things are to these people for whatever reason they like genuinely believe somebody's gonna come take their guns or whatever if they don't you know i don't know like i said i can't explain it but that's how that's like a glimpse into the mind of somebody that's super pro gun Hi, Dan. I am a 52-year-old woman, recently divorced. Um, one of the reasons why I got divorced, well, the big one, big one, is that my husband lost all interest in me sexually, and for the last 10 to 12 years of my marriage, I had absolutely no sexual touch at all. So I'm just recently back into the dating scene. It was really hard, but I met a guy I like, and we have started, you know, having sex, but I have learned that, you know, I still work. The plumbing still works for me. Multiple orgasms, everything's great, but my technique is not all that great for him. So in particular, it's in the giving of blowjobs. And I listen to your show, so I know all about, you know, head in and rub the shaft and all the things you tell us to do. But apparently, I cannot get my mouth wet enough, and I cannot get his penis wet enough that it ends up ultimately hurting. I like this guy. I'd like to do this for him. But I physically don't have enough spit in my mouth to make everything wet. And I would hate to lose him over this, but 
I totally get it. I mean, when you're with somebody and they're having two and three orgasms and you can't even have one, it's pretty, you know, it's, it's going to get old fast. So any suggestions you could make for me to be able to increase my spit, I would really like that. Okay, Trey, now we're into the nitty gritty sex advice. She's trying to suck this guy's dick, doesn't have enough spit. What should she do? Uh, I didn't even know that that was uh, a thing that could happen, but uh, <laughs> I've, I think I, like, I didn't know that people, you could run short on, on spit unless you were like literally dying. Like maybe she's dehydrated. She should look into some Powerade or something like that. Uh, or I think I read in a magazine once that like, if you're in the desert, I don't know why the hell this was in a magazine, but like you could put like a pebble under your tongue and it forces your mouth to produce saliva. But that's probably not true. But let's just say, let's act like it is. Sounds like a Cosmo magazine sex tip from 20 years ago, but go for it. Right. Yeah. But well, but it was about, it was like a Cosmo magazine, uh, how not to die in a desert tip. You know what I mean? That's like, I don't know why, I don't know why that article even existed, but I do remember reading that. And then, uh, also I've seen this stuff you can buy that you're supposed to spray in your mouth in the morning. Like if you're a mouth breather, like me, it's supposed to like, you know, you wake up a morning dry mouth. It's supposed to take care of that for you. So maybe she could get some of that and just like go way overboard with it and, uh, you know, turn into like one of Pavlov's dogs or something. You know what I mean? Overcompensate. And that those three things about all I got as far as how to produce more saliva. Hey, Trey Goddard, thank you so much. That was a great answer. Thank you so much. What's the name of the book? You got a book coming out October 4th. What's the name of it so people can find it? Yeah. Got a book coming out called The Liberal Redneck Manifesto, Dragon Dixie Out of the Dark. It's from Simon & Schuster. It comes out October 4th. You can pre-order it right now and all the way up through then. And you should pre-order it. If you haven't seen Trey Crowder's hilarious Liberal Redneck videos, get on the Google, get on YouTube, go watch a bunch of them. Trey, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. Oh, I hope I come back too. This was great. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Hi, Dan. I'm a uh, 25-year-old straight cisgender male. Um, I've been in a relationship with my girlfriend for about five years. um, And recently, uh, she has been starting, she's expressed interest in uh, picking up smoking. She says it's a texture thing for her. Her dad does it, so she has good memories with it. But it's something absolutely disgusting to me. Uh, we've worked at some sort of arrangement where she can have a limited amount of uh, cigarettes within the year so that she can get it out of her system. Um, I hope it she can get it out of her system. Uh, being addicted to cigarettes would be a deal breaker for me. It's really frustrating, and I, I, I want to trust her. Um, she's had problems before um, with not knowing her limits with alcohol. She's not an alcoholic or anything, but she has had one occasion where she got blackout drunk um, and she had to have a friend walk her home. So I just want your opinion on this. It's really bothering me. It's a high contentious issue for the both of us because um, I I feel as if I don't give her any leverage at all or anything to work with that she's going to go behind my back and it's going to get worse just because I know how people are. You can't be a little bit of a smoker. You're a smoker or you're not a smoker. It's just like you can't be a little bit pregnant. You're pregnant or you're not pregnant. You're a cocksucker or you're not a cocksucker. Like you should break up with her because smoking is, as one of the tech savvy at risk youth said when we talked about your call, a legit straight up nobody can fault you deal breaker. 
You don't want to kiss somebody who smokes. You don't want to be with somebody who smokes. Then you just aren't with somebody who smokes. And my God, agreeing to some number of cigarettes she is permitted by you to smoke in the course of a year to stay. How are you going to track that over the course of a year? That's just going to be a conflict generator. That's going to be impossible for you to stay on top of, impossible for you to track or count the number of cigarettes. No, no, this is bullshit. Just break up with her. What kind of person, what kind of idiot, whether daddy smoked or not, what kind of idiot picks up smoking in their mid-20s? That's bananas. And that speaks to, on her part, bad judgment. And who wants to be with somebody for the long, long term if you're contemplating life partnering with this person who wants to be with somebody over the long, long term who has such terrible fucking judgment that they would begin to smoke in their mid twenties. I, that seems so crazy to me that I'm sitting here thinking that maybe she's been smoking the entire time that you've been together just behind your back, that she's been smoking since she was 12 or 13. Like most people who are addicted to cigarettes, their entire lives were, they started young and she hid it from you all this time and now wants to, come out of the cold and smoke in front of you or not have to sneak around worrying about when she's going to get caught. That's just me spitballing here. Even if that's not the case, even if she's just one of those rare 25 or 26 year olds who decides that based on everything they know about cigarettes at that stage of life, that they want to start smoking. Yeah. You should dump that person. You should instantaneously and without hesitation, make it clear to that person that it's you or cigarettes. And she's already chosen, it seems, cigarettes. So it's cigarettes, not you. Hi, Dan. Um, this is a late 20-something in the Pacific Northwest, and I have a really sort of paranoid kind of vibe question. Um, my boyfriend's a smoker, and if he doesn't, like, brush his teeth or something, like, after he gets done smoking and he goes down on me, should I be worried about, like, germs or anything like that? And like kind of along the same vein, I think about morning breath and just germs in general, like down there. We've all heard of secondhand smoke. That's the smoke drifting through the air at a bar or at a restaurant or on the street or in someone's living room or in their car because they smoke. And there's some innocent lungs nearby that are inhaling that smoke. And it can impact that innocent pair of lungs, that person's health as well. Thirdhand smoke Take it away, Mayo Clinic. Generally considered to be residual nicotine and other chemicals left on a variety of indoor surfaces by tobacco smoke creating a toxic mix. Studies show that third-hand smoke clings to hair, hair, skin, skin, like his lips, like his face when he's pressing it into your twat, clothes, furniture, drapes, walls, bedding, carpets, dust, vehicles, and other surfaces, even long after the smoking has stopped. The Mayo Clinic goes on, the only way to protect non-smokers, like you, caller, from third-hand smoke is to create a smoke-free environment. And I think, you know, there's only one way for you to do that if your boyfriend is going to continue to smoke. Hi, Dan. 26-year-old, bisexual female, major city on the East Coast. I'm calling the morning after my boyfriend had made a drunken fool of himself. We were all supposed to go to a wedding, spent all day getting ready my friends came over, we were pre-gaming. He said that he didn't want to go because he had work the next day early. But he was drinking with us and getting pretty intoxicated. He gets a little loud when he's drunk, but nothing that bad. Just like wants a lot of attention. But as soon as we were about to get up and leave, 
someone said, oh, my God, he's puking on himself. And I see he's on the couch just in a stupor, just slowly vomiting. And I just told everyone to go ahead and I would meet them at the wedding. But luckily, two of my guy friends stayed behind and helped because at that point he was completely passed out cold. They had to carry him to the tub and... Everyone was calling me and texting me, where are you? Is he okay? And I just don't know what to say. Because his drinking has been scary for me before in a similar way. He's not a mean drunk, and he usually is able to control himself just fine. But there have been one or two other incidents like this. One notably, uh, right after his grandfather died, he, he got absolutely blackout drunk at a bar next to our workplace and all of our coworkers saw him. Just a month ago, he, on a dare, chugged an entire pitcher of beer by himself and then threw up all over himself on the way out of the restaurant. I don't know what to do. I love this man. We talk about the future. We both want kids, but I don't know if this is if he's an alcoholic or what, it, it doesn't seem like he always needs to drink. And it's not always like this, but now it's become a pattern of him losing control of himself and humiliating me in front of all my peers. We called to apologize this morning, but I don't know. I don't know what to do. So have there been any developments since you called and left your question? Yeah. Um, Right after I called, I called him, and he was just about to get to work, but I was able to catch him, and we were both pretty emotional, but he said, well, I guess I'll just pick up my stuff, and that's it. And I was like, that's what you want to do? You just want to give up? And he was like, well, obviously I have some work to do dealing with my demons, and I need help, and I don't want to put you through that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Jesus, (laughs) I mean, if you want to get help, I want to be there. I'm not, I, I've dated people where they had problems. They needed a therapist and it was like pulling teeth or they never did it. I didn't think that he would just volunteer that he's, he's been through a lot in his life. He was in the Iraq war and he was had a horribly abusive mother, basically a non-existent father. So he, he's been through enough that would break a, a lesser person. And yeah. So I feel good about that. We have my, my therapist said that he could come and talk to him if he wanted to get a consultation and get a referral. So we're going tomorrow. It, it all kind of showed up really nicely. actually. Well, good. I'm, I'm really glad to hear it. And I'm glad that you, when he offered to break up with you, didn't accept his letter of relationship resignation because <laughs> my advice was going to be to use the leverage of your presence, which is a, I sometimes use in reference to other circumstances, but I think it applies also in this circumstance where Mm -hmm. your continued presence in his life, the continuation of this relationship uh, is contingent upon not him being perfect for the rest of his life. You know, maybe he's going to step on the same rake again in the same way again, but him making progress and getting fucking help. Yeah. Because he does have a problem. And, you know, I'm from a large and alcoholic family and I've seen relationships where one person gets, you know, drinks to this point where they just, they, they have a new personality and there's no taking the drink out of their hand and they insist there's nothing wrong. And then everybody stands around and watches that person 
throw up on themselves or yeah. make a scene. And it's awful, and it's awful and humiliating, as you said, for that person's partner. Mm-hmm. And that's nothing you should you're nothing you would want to put up with for the rest of your life. Nothing you're going to Absolutely. hang out for decades yeah. handling. But he may need to stop drinking, or he may need to. Well, no, 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 or he may need to stop drinking. That's, I'm, that's already that's already like equivocating with the may there. He may need to stop <laughs> drinking. Probably does need to stop drinking. Probably. I mean, to be fair, almost to say is it's not that like every time he drinks it's like this, mm-hmm. but it's happened enough times. I can. I mean, I couldn't count it more than like five times, but even still, like. Right. But that's like saying every time you play <laughs> Russian roulette, you don't blow your brains out. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah. you shouldn't play Russian roulette. Even if you're just aiming the gun at your foot, maybe you don't mm-hmm. want to keep playing Russian roulette. Even if you've only shot your foot off three times <laughs> and you've played Russian yeah. roulette 50 times, still, that's kind of a high price to pay for the pleasures of Russian roulette. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's worth it. I'm much more of a pot person myself, so I can't really... If he, if I if you took all the alcohol away, I'd be like, all right. But he, he does like he hates his fucking job. He has two jobs. We both have two jobs. Mm-hmm. He works seven days a week. He never ever gets a day off. And I see the way he you know oh I came home with a bottle of tequila and he drinks and he doesn't when it's like that he doesn't drink to the point where I can even tell. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll see how much he's drank just by the the bottle and be like, holy shit. I don't yeah, know. that that's somebody who needs help. Particularly yeah. with the trauma that you rattled off there. I think that is somebody who needs help. That sounds like someone, you know, if they can drink most of a bottle of tequila and they don't betray signs of inebriation, that's someone who's medicating with alcohol to such an extent that they're developing an insanely high tolerance. Yeah, yeah, and, definitely self-medicating. And if you're self-medicating with alcohol to that extent, yeah, alcohol's not the medication that you need. <laughs> yeah. And... I'm a pot partisan myself. I'd rather see somebody smoking pot than drinking booze. Pot can, booze can make someone more aggressive. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the worst that you do when you get super stoned is fall asleep at the wedding. The worst that you do when you get super <laughs> drunk at the wedding is punch somebody, throw up all over yourself, and get her hauled out in handcuffs from the wedding. So there's yeah. a difference in degrees there. And I would be more comfortable hanging out if he was self-medicating with pot, but he ain't. He's self-medicating with an accelerant and a combustible mm-hmm. one. Everything you're saying makes total sense. It's it's hard. I don't want to be like telling him what to do, but no, you do. Like, no, you do. Actually, yeah. that's that's one of the responsibilities of people in, in long-term relationships. You do in all sorts of different circumstances. You have to tell that person what to do. You are going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to listen to you complain about that ache, that pain, that ailment anymore. You know what? You're going to go to the doctor. I made you a doctor's <laughs> appointment. That's what old marrieds do to each other. And that's why old marrieds live longer. Not because they're like, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but because they're like, I'm going to tell you what to do. Put down the cupcake, go to the goddamn doctor. You know what? Here's your bike. Go for a ride. You've been in the house all day. Like if you played a tape of just me and Terry talking to each other over the course of a week, if we stayed home for a week, it would mostly consist of both of us telling the other what to do all the time. (laughs) And it's a good thing to be in the, you know, you don't want to be the reason that he stops. You want him to find that in himself, but you are an incentive for him to find that reason in himself to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so absolutely. you say to him, we can be together. It can't be like this. If we're going to be together, go figure out how you can knock this off. Go do the work. 
on yourself. And I'm a small incentive, but your health going forward, also an incentive. I will. Yeah. Yeah. I was pretty, it, it was like the tables kind of turned because I was so angry and I was like, I can't be with you and you have issues. And, and I was directing that all like within myself. And as soon as I got him on the phone and he said that he wanted to break up all of a sudden, I was like, Oh my God, don't leave. Why? Uh, I don't want this to end. Beware the, mo- beware the maudlin drunk with regrets. No, I'm completely serious. I don't want to say that what your boyfriend did or what he said didn't come from an honest place, but you need to be on guard that, you know, Mm -hmm. like somebody who's with somebody who's uh, abusive, and I'm not saying he's abusive, but somebody's with somebody abusive, there's often this like sort of performance of regret and I'm so sorry and I feel so terrible. And the person who was abused winds up comforting their abuser because they feel so bad. And there's a similar kind of pattern with people who have a problem with alcohol where they're so, you know, disappointed in themselves and upset with themselves in the wake of it, that the person who they embarrassed or humiliated or wronged in some other way winds up comforting them. Mm -hmm. Right. Instead of, instead of him apologizing to you and you having the breakup card in your hand, he took the breakup card away from you and you ended up begging him to stay. I'm not saying it was a manipulative gambit, but it could have been. And if it, yeah, a, it, and, it and if there's a pattern like that going forward, if that's something that he does and he does similar things repeatedly, then you're being manipulated. I'm not saying this discrete incident is evidence of a pattern of manipulation. It may not be. It might have been completely sincere and no way manipulative. But mm-hmm. You need to have your bullshit detectors on in this relationship going forward because of the scale of this particular problem. All right. Yeah. I mean, any other things you might recommend that I do in in respect to having my bullshit detectors on? I would suggest not drinking with him. I would suggest not going to bars with him. Mm -hmm. If you're in a bar, then he's going to be in a bar. So at least for right now, maybe you don't go to bars. All right, I can do that happily. Can I smoke pot around him? <laughs> I think that's something that you need to talk about with him. Yes, all right. Whether pot, whether pot is triggering for him, or would it be helpful for him at this moment for you both to be sober for a good long while? You guys to join hands and do the sober thing? I'd be willing to do that. It would be a lovely gesture. Also, something to talk about, I think, with your shrink over whether that would be a kind of codependency as they say, or whether that would be helpful to him. Yeah. The only other thing I would say, though, you got to be careful that he doesn't make his health and well-being the hostage of this relationship, so that if the relationship ends, he's going to harm himself. You need to be clear with him that he needs to get healthy, he needs to get on his feet. Whether or not you two stay together, you two are going to stay together for now. You're still together, but these are two separate things. There's his health, there's his drinking problem, three things, and there's your relationship. And he needs to work on both. You need to work on your relationship. He needs to work on his drinking. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, and work on that problem. But with the help of a therapist, maybe some sessions together with your therapist, you need to make it clear that you can't be held hostage. He can't threaten to harm himself with drinking if you leave to keep you there. All right. Yeah. That's not really his way, but I will definitely be on, on guard for that. It sounds like you're headed in the right direction. I hope so. And good luck. And give us a call back sometime. Let us know how it's going. Thanks, Dan. It's so nice to hear your voice. Thank you.
Hey, Dan. 28-year-old straight male from uh, Ohio calling. Uh, my new girlfriend has told me that she is allergic to all condoms. I don't know how that's possible, but that's what she says. And uh, birth control is not really an option due to uh, traumatic brain injury that she's had. And so, like, hormone birth control doesn't really isn't really an option for us. So I was wondering if there's any kind of birth control options besides a vasectomy that are open to us. Planned Parenthood's website has a great and very informative section on birth control. And I urge you and anybody else out there who has questions or concerns about birth control to visit their website, plannedparenthood.org slash learn slash birth hyphen control, plannedparenthood.org. Just search on Google Planned Parenthood birth control options. It'll take you right to this page. You do have options. You have outer course. You don't have to come inside. Withdrawal, which is more effective than you might believe. Withdrawal, which is you have intercourse, you withdraw before ejaculating. Four out of every hundred women who practice the withdrawal method with their partners correctly will become pregnant in a given year. Practiced incorrectly, 27 out of 100. Withdrawal is almost as effective as condoms. Condoms used correctly, two out of every hundred women as opposed to four out of every hundred women are going to become pregnant in the course of a year. Condoms used not quite correctly, 18 out of 100 within the course of a year. But the best possible option for you and one for your girlfriend to consider is a non-hormonal IUD. That is going to provide you with the best protection and the most effective long-lasting protection. Quickly about condoms, some people do have sensitivities, latex sensitivities. Some people have latex allergies. Your girlfriend could be one of those people. She may not know, and this is something else you can discuss, she may not know that there are non-latex condom options. There are polyurethane condoms. Some people with sensitivities to latex are able to use polyurethane, which have no latex in it. And so that might be another option for you two to explore. Is there a condom out there that she can use and she's just not aware of? So get thee to Planned Parenthood's website, take a look around, read about your non-hormonal options, and then get thee, the both of you, the plural thee, to Planned Parenthood for an appointment. Hi, Dan. I am a late 20s straight white girl, and I say white girl because my question is about race, um, and I don't know if you can answer it, but I'm hoping at the very least you can maybe give some context and bring someone on who can. I was sleeping with someone last night, and he asked me to use the N-word on him. Um, he's black. And I was really surprised by that and didn't really know how to respond. Um, and we sort of had a conversation about it, but he just said it was this big fantasy. He really wanted it. It's okay during sex. And I guess I'm just curious why, what is okay to say during sex? Like, is there a line at which point you can't say things anymore, even if the other person wants you to? Because I've never been cool with, like, someone being like, you're a fat slut. I hate you while we're having sex. But also, uh, I don't understand this fantasy, and he couldn't fully articulate it. I'm curious if this is a normal fantasy. Do lots of black guys want that? I've never been with a black guy that wanted that before, but I would love some context 
and um, some help in figuring out if that's an okay thing to say if someone wants you to while you're having sex. If there are any African-American men out there listening who like this, give us a call. Tell us what this does for you. Tell us also how you compartmentalize it so you're not shredded by it. That said, people like what they like and they are entitled to ask for what they like. And there are analogous kind of experiences here. There are gay men, out, proud, politically active gay men who are turned on like nothing else if you call them faggot while you're fucking them. And they will ask you to call them faggot while you're fucking them. And there are right on feminist women who are going to vote for Hillary Clinton and have Ruth Bader Ginsburg tattoos who want to have their hair pulled and their asses slapped and be called sluts when you're fucking them. And this is comparable. It is okay for him to ask. You don't have to do it. If it makes you uncomfortable, it squicks you out. If that's not a word that you can force out of your pasty white mouth, then you don't have to do it. But there's not necessarily something wrong with him in asking for it. And people are sometimes turned on by the very things that in real life would piss them off or would be fighting words. And it becomes erotically charged and gets the fucking sex adrenaline flowing. And it's a turnout for them. And that can be hard to articulate. It's too bad that when you asked him why that was such a turnout for him, he couldn't really give you an answer that satisfied you. But sometimes it's hard for people, hard enough for people to ask for what turns them on during sex. It's another bar entirely to clear to get them to unpack why that turn on is a turn on for them. Things turn people on because they turn people on. And sometimes it's hard to explain something that's so fleeting perhaps or subjective or ephemeral or wrapped up with shame as it sometimes can be, particularly for people who want to be called names that tap into broader cultural hostilities or systemic oppressions or whatever to want to go there in sex can really be challenging, not just for the person who they're asking to go there with them, but for them themselves. So is this something that every black guy wants? No. And you know that already because you've slept with, it sounds like more than just this black guy. It sounds like you've slept with your fair share of black guys. And this is the only black guy who ever asked you to do that. So you know from personal experience that this is not something every black guy wants. So it's not something that you should or anybody listening should just bust out when you're sleeping with a black guy. Because most black guys, just like most gay men, don't want to be called faggot when they're having sex. Most black guys don't want to be called the N-word when they're having sex. But this black guy apparently does. And if it turns him on and it's consensual and his partner is okay with participating in fulfilling this particular fantasy and everybody is happy afterwards and nobody's shredded and on the floor in the fetal position sobbing, then it is okay. Hi, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old straight male out from San Francisco. And I got a little situation I need to help with. Never been in this before. Um, I'm working on a campaign and um, I recently hired a intern uh, who started last Tuesday to um, help me out here. A uh, little bit of flirting and uh, she seems really sweet. I'd like to sleep with her, but I also really, really need her help on the campaign. Is it too early to ask to uh, sleep with her or should I just wait this out? This Working on a campaign is very 
stressful work and a little sexual release would be very helpful. I want to sign off on this because, of course, I signed off on the president of the United States having a consensual relationship with a White House intern, consenting adults, nobody's business, consenting adults. They both chose to do this and nobody should be able to tell them that what they did was wrong and no one should be able to subpoena them and question them under oath about it. So I'm on the record in the past supporting someone in a position of power, actual power, not just nominal power, having consensual sex with an adult intern. That said, I'm not sure I can sign off on this. I'm not sure it would be in your best interests either for me to sign off on it or for you to do it. Not that you need me to sign off on it for you to do it, but let's just pretend that that was the case. 35-year-old straight guy working on political campaigns, gets a reputation for fucking interns, might not get hired to work on many more political campaigns, particularly in the liberal state of California. But that's not what's making me super-duper hesitant to give you my blessing. It's the way you phrased it at the end of the call, your interests in this intern who's only been there for a few days. And you might be one of those straight guys who is mistaking smiles and nods and graciousness for flirting. She may not be flirting with you, but the way you describe your interests in her working on a campaign is stressful and a little sexual release would be helpful. Kind of makes her sound like your right hand or your fleshlight. Not that this campaign brought you two together and there's a genuine spark there and genuine sexual interest and you were attracted to her and you would like to date her or have a sexual relationship with her. And what do you do about the timing? Because right now you're working together. Right now this campaign is underway that will end soon. But right now, what do you do? What you're saying is you would like to jack off inside this woman because it'll calm your nerves. And it makes me think that you're not that interested in her as a person, just her utility to you, that you're interested in her as an object that you can jack off inside of, like a walking, talking intern fleshlight and not a walking, talking human being with needs and interests and feelings of her own and an emotional inner life that also has to be taken into consideration. And you're not taking that emotional inner life into consideration, at least in your call, at least in the way you frame the question. You can achieve sexual release all on your own. You can, in San Francisco, find other women. You can get on Tinder. You can find other women who are seeking sexual release and not much else because their home or work lives are so stressful and they could use you the same way you would like to use them. So it's a false choice to suggest that it's this intern or sexual frustration for the rest of your life or the rest of the campaign. That ain't true. So I'm not going to give you my blessing. I don't think you should do this professionally, not in your best interests. And I don't think you have the best interests of your intern at heart either. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a 25 year old straight female uh, from Chicago and I'm calling because I think a guy that I've been dating is probably gay and I don't know what the kindest, most compassionate way to respond is. I met this guy on Tinder a few months ago. He's very, very good looking and successful. He's in his mid thirties and we've been dating since then. We've gone out to movies, restaurants, that sort of thing. Um, but there has been no physical chemistry whatsoever. We've kissed once and just based on some of the things that he said, it, it kind of has started to dawn on me that he is probably not straight. He is on a, 
sports team, an all-male sports team that travels together and practices quite often. And he most recently invited me to a party that they are having at a fairly well-known gay bar. Um, So I don't know what the best way to approach this is. I'd really like to be his friend because I like him a lot as a person, but I don't want to make him defensive or make assumptions about his sexuality. And I feel like asking him outright is sort of pointless. So I was just wondering what your advice was for letting him know that I'd like to be his friend and that I want to be supportive of him without putting him on the defensive. Why not put him on the defensive? Because it seems, at least to me, that there's something that he should be required to defend to you, which is the amount of your time that he has wasted. He met you on straight Tinder, theoretically, and has been whining and dining you for months. There's been no physical chemistry, you say. There's only been one lonely little kiss, no other moves made, no other nothing. So what's up with him? And I think it's totally straight up legit for you to say, what are you doing? What are we doing? Are we dating? Are you not into me? Are you gay? Not that joining an all-male sports team that travels and practices together frequently makes a guy gay. If that were the case, then the NFL, Major League Baseball, all of the major sports would be entirely a gay thing, which they are not. So I wouldn't necessarily throw his sports team in his face as evidence of his gayness, but certainly his lack of interest in you is something that he should have to answer for. Not that, you know, just because a guy isn't interested in a woman, that means he's gay. But for a guy who's clearly not interested in a woman physically to romance that woman, he's got some agenda, something's up and you should ask him what that is. And you can ask somebody if they're gay because there's nothing wrong with being gay. And some people who are lying closet cases, which is what this guy is. If he is gay and he has male sex partners and he is out to them and he's out to everyone on his gay bar frequenting sports team and he is playing you, lying to you, lying to you by omission, then he has to answer for that. And sometimes it helps for somebody who's playing that game, someone who's a closeted gay, to know that they're not fooling anybody, to know that they're not fooling you in particular, to hear that. You might hear from him, though, that he is bisexual but heteroamorous, that he is bi and has been sexually active with men and perhaps still is, but he's interested in women romantically. And then you can decide whether you want to go forward with that because somebody who's bi but heteroromantic typically is also, when they're with a woman or dating a woman, up for sex or at least up for kissing, up for something. And if his definition of bi but heteroromantic is sex with men, dinner with women – not somebody you want wasting your time and someone that you should call to account for having wasted as much of your time as this guy already has. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about episode 518 where the woman's boyfriend had this horribly disgusting habit. I just want to say that was so fucking gross. I started to retch. I finally had to fast forward to the end of that bit and I will tell you that I've heard plenty of, you know, episodes that have to do with scat, which I also find disgusting. But for some reason, that was so much worse to me. I don't know. Anyway, Jesus, God, don't talk about that stuff again. It freaks me out. 
Well, hi, Dan. This is in response to the caller in 518 who was disgusted by having someone eat eye boogers in front of him. Number one, what exactly do you think eye boogers are? It's just your eye drops that have hardened and dried. And yes, while I don't think everyone needs to see someone eating them, I don't think it's disgusting. I think it's just a habit, just like people bite their toenails or in some case, people who eat their boogers. And guess what? I'm one of those people, but I don't do it in front of anybody else because dear Lord knows I don't want anyone else to see it. So yes, you should have freaked out on him about like, you know, hey, don't do that in front of me. I don't like it. Please stop. But like, it's not like, I don't know, he's eating his own shit, which let me tell you, some people like that. I don't. But, you know, I think you're kind of trying to categorize it in the same category as that. So just something to think about before you uh, go off on the rails of somebody eating their eye boogers, which is really not that big of a deal. Sorry, just my two cents. Hi, Dan. I'm actually calling to record a comment about the last episode about the PCT. Um, I was not hiking this summer, but I was living in a town that was right on the trail. And I ended up hooking up with a lot of hikers. I can definitely see why girls get caught up. The hikers that I hooked up with were across the board the most GGG partners I have ever had. And also, I'm pretty sure I met Annie. And girl, you are way too cool to be getting jerked around like that. Leave the guy hike ahead. They were totally right. Also, I wanted to share a little term I coined for myself this summer. Um, I started calling myself a hiker hound. A hiker hound is someone who is not hiking, but actively pursues awesome sex with through hikers. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Speaking of Twitter, Julie tweets, big thanks to at FakeDanSavage for making my workday so much better, working on designs and enthusiastically mouthing opinions to myself. You're welcome, Julie, and good luck with the designs. Catch Trey Crowder on his comedy tour. Go to wellreadcomedytour.com. That's W-E-L-L-R-E-D comedy.com. Then if you're looking for Trey online, spell his first name T-R-A-E Crowder. When you're Googling around looking for his videos, they will all pop right up. And they are high hilarious. Check him out. Humpfilmfest.com is coming to you. Go to humpfilmfest.com for info about the cities where Hump will be coming to come. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.